And we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 23. I do want to say this. Um, if I did shorten my sermons, some of you would have shorter naps. And so you're welcome. <laughs> All right, Matthew chapter 23, basically the whole chapter. Here we go. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table of banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Blind guides, what sorrow awaits you, for you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts of the altar is binding. How blind, for which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? When you swear by the altar, you are swearing by it and by everything on it. And when you swear by the temple, you are swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you are swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the most important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. 
outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have never joined them in killing the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. Snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you will kill some by crucifixion, and you will flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, for the murder of righteous Abel, for the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, let's pray. Good morning, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to be able to gather here and to worship you, to sing your praises, to, to enjoy each other's company, to laugh together, to pray together, to be blessed when those among us share their gifts like singing and, and playing instruments. And all this is worship, worship of you and offered to you. And now as part of our worship, as part of our time together, we turn our attention to your scriptures. We ask you might open our ears that we might hear. Lord, sometimes the hardest thing to hear is things that we've heard before. And so make these words of Scripture ring new in our ears. Sometimes the hardest things to hear are when we think we already know. And so help us to, to turn to your Scriptures eager, anticipating a fresh word from you. I pray this morning that you would hide me behind your cross and that your words would fill my mouth, and that through all of this, you would receive glory. Amen. All right, so last week, we started this sermon series, The Sin of Certainty, and we looked at, uh, we discussed our certainty of God. And probably a better way of thinking about that, and we talked about this too, isn't so much our certainty about God or whether or not there is a God. That's not the point. The, the, the certainty that we often um, fall victim of is the idol of God that we've created mentally. If you were here last week, hopefully you remember that. That what we do is we create this mental image of God in our minds, and then we, we believe and we defend wholeheartedly that that is the truth about God. And in the process, that becomes idolatry. Um, and if we're not careful, you could even call that the idolatry of God, which is interesting. Um, so this week, what I want to look at is uh, the certainty we have about ourselves. So let me ask you a question. 
Um, by show of hands, if you are perfect, put your hand up. Okay, good. Whew, all right. I was a little concerned about, yeah, put your hand down, Dewey. I know you well enough, Dewey. Put your hand down. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. Um, so we agree that nobody's perfect, including ourselves. Nobody's perfect. All right, here's, here's the next question. Do you want to change? Do you? Do you want to change? All right, now how many of us are actively doing anything to change? Some, depending on what aspect, right? Okay, so like for example, I mentioned uh, about a month ago, or actually it's been three weeks ago, Denise and I were going to start eating healthy. And we have, and so I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. I'm actually doing something. But I got to admit, the only, like, that doesn't mean that the only place that I'm not perfect was in my weight. Right? So there's other aspects of my life that I'm not perfect. And, that, and, and so I, I need to be thinking about myself holistically. And where am I not perfect? And should I be actively trying to change that? So, so what we're actually talking about here, right, is this, the difference between what some philosophers call belief and unbelief. So we have these we have these beliefs that we present to everyone, right? So for example, I'm not perfect. That is, that is the belief that I present to everyone. But then deep down, if, I'm, like, if I don't do anything about it, then deep down my true belief might be that I actually am. Okay, so the belief that I present to everybody that I want you to believe about me is called unbelief. That is my unbelief. And the, but deep down inside me, I have my true beliefs. Now, every now and then, my, my true beliefs, my beliefs accidentally show themselves. And I may not even notice it. Because here's the other thing, the, the tricky part about an unbelief is you actually believe it about yourself also. Are you tracking with me so far? Let me give you an example. Uh, I was recently having a conversation with a friend of mine, and, um, and I know my friend very well. And, um, and, and he, he, he prides himself on how uh, he has grown up in a particular family where racism was prevalent. And, uh, but now he is not racist, right? He, I mean, he'll just tell you straight up, I'm, I'm, very, I'm so proud of my, like, he won't say proud because we're also very humble, right? But, um, but he's not racist anymore. And we were talking about the NFL draft and he said something about all of those players sitting there with their black moms. Okay, I'm willing to bet my friend didn't even realize what he had said. But in that moment, that belief of racism that is still inside him comes out. But if you ask him, and I truly, he believes it wholeheartedly. And, and I will say this for my friend, he's aware of his, his, his self pretty, pretty well. And so if he had realized that, it, he would have been ashamed and he would have tried to do something, he would have tried to change. And he would have, there's an awareness that would have come with that, right? But... His, his unbelief, the things that he presented, is, I am not racist. 
But in that moment, that little glimpse, maybe there is still some in there. Do you see what I'm saying? Right? Um, unbelief is the holding of a belief that we don't really believe, a belief that hides the reality that what we really believe is generally not reflected in the image we have of ourselves. That's the definition of unbelief. Let me read it again. Unbelief is the holding of a belief that we don't really believe, a belief that hides the reality that what we really believe is generally not reflected in the image we have of ourselves. And I would also add the image that we then present. So the issue then is that our certainty is often actually based on our unbelief. Are you still tracking with me? The false beliefs that we have set up are often where our certainty resides. Let me give you an example in another place in the Bible. We're going to talk about this here for a second. This is in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into violent convulsions, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us. If you can. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cries out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. The, the true belief of that person appears in the words, if you can. Now what needs to be changed is the belief. The if you can needs to be wiped out. But the only way that you can wipe that out is if you first confront the unbelief and you begin to put a crack in the veneer. You begin to break down the image that we have created of ourselves in our minds that we then try to present to the world. Am I perfect? No. But I sure want everyone to think that I am. Or are you perfect? No. And I truly believe it because it shows you what a good Christian I am and how humble I am. But I don't do a darn thing to change because really deep down in my beliefs, I am already perfect just the way I am which is often more likely, especially for Christians, right? So let me say this. The unbelief is, yes, I am, I am not perfect. I am a sinner, and I'm, and I'm very humble, and I, and I just completely throw myself on the grace and mercy of God. That's, that's often our unbelief. The belief is, I'm perfect just the way I am, and if everyone else would be just like me, the world would be a whole better place. <laughs> you get that? Now, do we understand what I'm saying? Okay, good. So let's take a closer look then at what this story is telling us, because I think this is extremely important for us, right? It's tempting for us to think that Jesus is chastising these leaders because of their inner darkness, but this doesn't really make sense in relation to the wider trajectory of the gospels. 
which Jesus seems to appear to be accepting people in their brokenness. Right? Does, I mean, think about all the people that Jesus meets with, and it seems like he accepts them in their brokenness. So why is, what's the problem with the religious leaders? Right? Let's contrast this condemnation with the parable of the tax collector for a moment, who acknowledges his darkness and is praised by Jesus. The Pharisees have not found a way of expressing their darkness. And so it festers in them, in their, in their unconsciousness, as an unacknowledged reality. The problem isn't that there's darkness. The problem is it's not acknowledged. And so it begins to fester. It's only as we admit to our captivity to this unbelief that we've created, that we can begin to confront what we truly believe in our hearts. As long as I truly believe that I'm perfect, there's no reason for me to change. And, but if, especially if I can continue to convince you that I'm humble. So while these religious teachers are not being honest about the truth of their beliefs, it would be wrong to think that Jesus is angry because they're somehow lying to others. It's much more likely that the religious leaders are actually lying first and foremost to themselves. Because we often believe our unbelief. It's hard for us to think of ourselves as broken. So we deny it, even though it's obviously true. The religious leaders Jesus is addressing would no doubt feel misunderstood and indignant about his accusations. They do. Because their ego, this, this image that they have of themselves, is not simply a cover to help them maintain a positive image in front of others. More fundamentally, it provides a way for them to maintain a positive image before themselves. They truly believe that they're all of that. And when you tell them they're not, it becomes a problem. We're all tempted to fall into the same trap as these religious teachers whom Jesus chastised. We want to hold to the image that we have of ourselves and our world because it is a fiction that gives us a sense of place, purpose, and perspective. Our various foundational beliefs about the world, God, and ourselves, they act like a shield that protects us from a full confrontation with what we actually believe. When I am certain, I have no reason to change. And therefore, my certainty becomes an obstacle to what in the Christian church we call sanctification. Because for me to truly experience sanctification, because I've done such a good job of fooling myself on who I am, it requires other people's eyes to help me see. Those moments when I say something, 
and it reveals my true self. I have to have people around me that love me enough that are like, oh, that was interesting. Tell me more about that. I want to hear more about that. I don't want to hear any more about how humble you are. I want to hear more about that moment when you said how right you are and how correct you are. I want to hear more about that. I have to have good friends that love me that are willing to call me on my garbage. Jesus was the other set of eyes for these Pharisees and they crucified him for it. Think about this. This is just a silly, simple example. We have taken, uh, we, have, we have started uh, having a different affirmation of faith every Sunday. Anybody notice that? How many of you hate it? Honestly. How many of you hate the fact that we do that, right? Here's the thing. It's because it's really easy for us to just continue to blah, 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 blah every Sunday. In fact, I did it this morning. Did you hear me? I believe in God the Father Almighty. Oops, that's not the one we're saying. See, and what happens is just by being forced to do things a little bit differently, we actually begin to wonder, do I actually believe, hopefully this is the point, do I actually believe the things that I'm saying? Or has it just become so rote for me that I can just say it, doesn't matter if I believe it or not. Now, having uh, one of them, the Apostles' Creed, memorized is really good for those moments when we're doing a baptism and all of a sudden the screens freeze up. Remember that? <laughs> it's so glad we have it memorized. So there's nothing wrong with having like these things that are just like, it's memory for us and this is what we do and this is who we are. But we have to be willing to stop sometime and say, but wait a second, is that a belief or is that an unbelief? Is that a belief or is that an unbelief for me? Right? When we encounter a worldview different from our own, there are four common responses that we have to this. One is called consumption. And what that means is, okay, you're different than me. Your beliefs are different than me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to convert you into my beliefs, and then you can become part of my group. That's consumption, right? So when we meet a different worldview, that's one of the things we want to do is, well, your worldview is different than mine. Mine's better. So I'm going to change yours, and then you can be part of my group. That's called consumption. Another one, the technical way of talking about it is called vomiting, but I changed it to rejection. <laughs> right? And that's where your worldview is different than my worldview, so we can't have anything to do with each other, and you can't have anything to do with my group. I'm going to reject you. And so now you're the outsider, and we're the insiders. And, and don't question our worldview. Don't challenge our worldview, because this is what we believe. Or maybe this is what we unbelieve. But it makes us really comfortable, and so we're going to stay right here. And the third way is toleration. And what that means is, okay, your worldview is different. That's fine. You can still be part of our group. Just don't let anybody know. Keep quiet. Keep your head down. Every now and then we'll see it. We'll be like, isn't that cute? That's, that's so cute. But just don't create problems for the group. And then the fourth way is called dialogue. And that means I'm going to enter into conversation with you. Now, I have to admit, the first time I came across this in a philosophy book I was reading not too long ago, I thought, oh, that's me. I'm dialogue. And I, thought, so I felt really good about myself. I was like, oh, that, I'm always willing to enter into conversation with people. And I, and I find it so interesting. Right? And then the author went on and said, but here's the problem with that. 
All four, in all four of those, we judge the outsider from our position. I was like, wait a second, bud, I was doing really well. (laughs) Why was I doing well? Because I'm better than everybody else. I'm willing to enter into dialogue. What the author said is there's a different approach. And as I read about the different approach, I thought, you know what? This is actually the approach the disciples took to Jesus. Because think about Jesus, right? With those four things, all four of those things are present in the gospel stories. Some people completely, they, they like try to convert Jesus back to, listen, you're getting off camp. We need to convert you back to traditional Judaism. We, okay, and so that happens. We also see complete rejection all the way to a cross. We see some toleration. And then we actually see some dialogue. But it's the disciples that actually choose the fifth way, which is placing themselves beneath the other in the sense of allowing their views to challenge and unsettle their own. When we hear something different, allowing ourselves to be challenged and unsettled. That's what the disciples did. Think about it. I mean, Jesus comes in and just flips their world completely upside down. And for some reason, they still follow him. I mean, listen, when he looks at them and and tells them, there's a story in the Gospels, you might be familiar with it, where he starts talking about this thing, and and it's really hard teaching. And all of a sudden, like so many of them leave. And he looks at his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And they're like, well, where else are we going to go? That's a, that means you're, it's, I mean, things are being really turned upside down. Where else are we going to go? What are we going to do? Everyone else has left me. What are you going to do? See, what happens here is that Christianity is about trusting in Jesus' worldview. The way Jesus looks at this world and the people in this world. Trusting in the things that he taught and that he did. And then having our lives turned upside down to reflect Jesus' worldview. My worldview today and Jesus' worldview today are not the same. If they were, I could have raised my hand when I, said I, when I asked the question if we were perfect. Christianity continues to decline in the United States. COVID, like, poured gas on the fire. Anybody disagree? Okay. But here's the thing. If we listen closely to those that are leaving, we begin to hear a cry, right? Uh, This question, they, they believe that questioning leads to a deeper understanding. But their experience is that religion frowns on questioning because it believes, it presents itself as already having all the answers. And so when their questions arise, it leads them actually farther away rather than deeper into. And I can't help but wonder if with Christianity we're actually presenting our unbelief as the belief. I recently uh, was visiting with a friend of mine. He's Jewish. And... um, the only reason that matters is because he said something to me because of his Jewish faith that really made me think for a moment. 
He said this, he said, beliefs change, and beliefs not only change, but they should change. Your beliefs should change while your faith remains. So the problem is we think that faith and belief are the same thing. He pointed out all the differences in Judaism. And we get a glimpse of it in the Gospels. And those, those differences still exist today. And he says this, and I had to write it down. We can have different beliefs and the same faith. We can have different beliefs and still have the same faith. So what upsets us most about those who leave the faith? Because we get upset about it. What upsets us the most? Is it, the, is it their lack of belief or is it our fear of confronting our own unbelief? Is, it, is their leaving, is their rejecting of their religion? Is the problem is, is it, it starts to make me feel uncomfortable because it might force me to actually take a moment and think about myself? If having faith means that I have to hold on to certainty when certainty is crumbling all around me, then my only option is to go to war, even if that means killing my own. Now, the Bible is full of people questioning what they believe, it's all through the Bible. They question their beliefs, their worldview. In fact, there's some authors that even question whether or not they believe in God anymore. These expressions of abandonment, they aren't godless moments that we see in our Bible. They relay the experiences of ancient men and women of faith. And they were kept in the Bible because those experiences were common. They were part of being an Israelite. And therefore, they were valued. For us, they signal not only what can happen in the life of faith, but also what does happen. And maybe even what we should expect to happen. Amen.